Welcome to the Eventful Entrepreneur. My name's Dodge. I've been an entrepreneur for over 30 years and thrown thousands of parties across the UK. And I'm also the owner of the Bournemouth Sevens Festival. Everyone who knows me knows I love people, having a laugh <laughs> and asking lots of questions. So I've been chatting to people with one thing in common. They've all lived eventful lives. This week, I'm delving into the eventful life of Joe Foster. Joe is the co-founder of the global sports giant Reebok. We chat about the truth behind the Reebok name, legal disputes with Adidas, and going from 8 million to 4 billion in just six years after smashing America. Joe is an absolute gentleman and has an incredible insight into high-flying, globe-trotting life in business and what it takes to create the number one sports brand in the world. Click to subscribe, it's absolutely free. And if you want to get hold of me personally, you can find me at Dodgewood or on Instagram. So here he is, Mr. Reebok, Mr. Joe Foster. Hey Joe, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure, Roger. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Yes. Very much looking forward to this. So let's get cracking. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. How did Reebok start? Wow. I mean, it depends where you want to be on that one. You start at a dinner level. <clears throat> but if you want to really start with the family, um, yep. I, I guess the inspiration really came from my grandfather. That's 1895. In 1895, he made for himself a pair of spiked track shoes. They used to call them pumps in those days. He is credited sometimes with the invention of it, but I think more the development, because I think spikes have been used, I know, certainly for cricket and other things. Anyway, we go back to 1895. Grandfather, same name as me, Joseph William Foster, obviously called Joe Foster. He made his spikes in 1895, 15 years old. And, of course, it did improve his, uh, his position. He part of the local athletics club, uh, Bolton Primrose Areas. Yeah. A sort of medium type runner, you know, half halfway down the field, made himself a pair of spikes and came a very unlikely second in his next race, which was sort of uh, um, a bit sort of uh, worrying for his uh, his teammates. And I'm not too, he wasn't a big lad, you know, he was only about five, six, five, seven and uh, a bit skinny. So I'm pretty sure that uh, he could have been bullied into making his. Uh, his teammate shoes. I like his entrepreneurial spirit, though, to find a pair of spikes to go faster. Well, absolutely. I mean, you've got to go way back to them. But by the by, nineteen hundred, he had a business yeah, because wow. he was making them for all all his own teammates and all the clubs surrounding within 20, 30, 40 miles. So he had a business. He he was a cobbler by trade, but sort of you know, his speciality then became making running shoes and. Uh, during the, uh, the first decade of uh, the 1900s, he, he had gold medals from Olympics. Yeah, wow. So the second uh, decade, World War II. Yeah. World War One. sorry. World War One. no shoes. But the, 20, the, the 20s, that was his ballet pop. He really, uh, I mean, we have a, uh, a letterhead, and, and we've got a replica of it now, and he was supplying 96 football teams, rugby teams, with boots and shoes. And it's difficult to name... Uh, a team from from the British leagues. You know, we're talking Man United, Man City, Arsenal, Chelsea, we, we, uh, Celtic and Rangers. All these teams it was supplying in that time. Plus also, he had gold medals all the way through the 20s, um, okay. including Eric Liddell, um, Harold Abrahams and Lord Burley. They were the ones who were sort of uh, in, in Chariots of Fire. You know, they, they were the ones that in Chariots of Fire. And... Uh, um, but he made those shoes that they actually won the gold medals in. He died in 1933. His sons took over, my father and uncle. I was born in 1935 on his birthday, the 18th of May. So oh. grandmother, a bit of a firebrand she was. She said, oh, he's brought his name with him. So that's why I'm named Joe as well. So I'm the next Joe Foster. Only four years later, we have World War II. I'm 10 when that's over. Normal childhood after that sort of thing. And where were you based, Joe? Where were you based in the UK? Bolton. Bolton. Okay. Which is just sort of uh, north of Manchester. Yep. We're about ten miles away from Manchester. Um, so yes, Bolton. Bolton was very famous in those days because it was uh, grandfather had been selling his shoes mainly through the Commonwealth or in, in those days with the Empire. But he did have people from the states buying his shoes. So even in those days, and he knew all about influencing because he used to give his shoes to the athletes. And of course, but he was only influencing athletes in those days. It wasn't street as it is now. 
So he was an influencing athlete. However, he died before I arrived. We'd gone through World War II. We're coming out. I'm 17, joined the company for a year, and then I have to do national service. In those days, we had two years of national service, and it so happened that Jeff, although he was older than me, we both went for national service at the same time. Jeff went to Germany, saw Adidas, Puma, what they were doing. I stayed in the UK, in the RAF, I was on radar, but uh, I, spent, I spent 12 months of my two years playing badminton, which was pretty good there. I was a reasonable player at that time, so, <laughs> so I was always off playing badminton. It was great fun when you're being paid for that. Yeah. Um, However, we come back after two years. We come back to the company and we've been away. You know, mother wasn't getting you up, making your breakfast, having, doing your washing, whatever. You had to learn a bit of self-sufficiency, which you do. In the forces, you learn to be able to do things. You, you look at things in a different light. So we came back to the company and we come back to a failing company. So J.W. Foster & Sons, who it's advertised, it was the biggest hands-on uh, shoemaker in the world, sports shoemaker in the world at that time. And we come back and we're looking at the company and it's not moved since the 30s. Yeah. Um, here we are, late 50s, and we're, we're saying the company's failing. And a number of times I had words from my dad and, uh, and he's saying, look, uh, when I'm gone and Bill's gone, <coughs> this company's yours. And yeah. I was saying, we don't want you gone, Dad. <laughs> Just let me crack on. <laughs> not, not our plan, Dad, you know, but this company will be gone before you are. This, this company is dying, unless you get plans, unless you get... But unfortunately, father and uncle just didn't get up. They feuded, a bit like Adi Dassler and Rudy Dassler. They feuded, but Rudy Dassler, he left and set up Puma. Yeah. Um, and Adi Dassler got on with the, the Adidas business, uh, but they didn't. So all this feuding going on, we couldn't get them to change. So by 1958, we'd had enough. Jeff and I had been to college evening college and we'd learn more about shoemaking <clears throat> it's, it's all right being on the floor and knowing how to make athletic shoes but we needed to learn how to make shoes properly and uh, in fact look at modern machinery because they hadn't got any modern machinery again the machinery was back back in the 30s so we we decided we would leave the company and in 1958 november 1958 jeff and i left and set up our own company and we called it mercury sports footwear after 18 months, and the I can tell you the story of why, but we had to change our name and we came across Reebok. So that's where Reebok started. Wow. And what, what, what made you think of the name Reebok? We're J.W. Foster, same as the company. Our, our parent company is J.W. Foster. We can't be J.W. Foster. That would be a bit confusing. So we decided on a name, Mercury. Fine, great. 18 months into our business, our accountant said, um, Joe, you're doing pretty nicely. You're making some money. Uh, you better register your name. And what would you mean, register the name? <laughs> well, he said, if somebody else comes along and says, those are very nice shoes, we'll make these Mercury shoes. Um, you're going to have trouble if you're not registered that name. You're going to have to prove that you started the name. <sighs> okay, how do we do that? Well, it's already pre-registered. <sighs> Lotus and Delta, part of British Shoe Corporation. They had it registered. They weren't using it. And they offered it to us for a thousand pounds. A thousand pounds back then would have been a lot of money, right? <laughs> yes, it was a real lot of money. We didn't have that. You know, and we just started a company and we, you know, we were buying machinery for 25 pounds. Like, you know, that, that's all we had to pay for it. Second hand machinery. A thousand pounds was so far out of sight. So um, the accountant said, well, you better go and see a patent agent, an agent who will advise you. So I went to Manchester and I sit in the office and, uh, we discussed what's going on. Said, okay, then if you can't buy the name, you have to change it. Mm. Said, bring me 10 names. 10? Yeah. You know, I only want one. <laughs> yeah, we, we could have registered this with, with the register. And he pointed through his window. It was a nice day. I think it was in May. Nice day. He opened the, the window and uh, pointed to Kodak. What's with Kodak? He said, well, it's invented. It's, it's their name. It's not anything else. They've invented the name Kodak. That's what you need to do. All right. Well, I don't know if you've sat around a table deciding what your name is going to be, but it's, it's a torment. So we sit down, we come up with names, uh, Cougar, um, Falcon, you know, everything that sounded a little bit aggression. But let me take you back to 1943. I'm eight years old. Yeah. And it's during the war. So we're in the middle of World War II. 
and we have local events and I enter an, an event, well, I'm entered into an event, a 60-yard sprint, and I win. But admit, I had spikes on. <laughs> Did everyone know you had spikes on? No, I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> Brilliant. But, uh, anyway, I win the race. And up I go to collect my prize. Right, well, what is it? A dictionary. <laughs> I, I'm eight years old and they're giving me a dictionary. Yeah. You know, where's all the toys, guys? You know, yeah. Yeah. You know where's the fun stuff? It wasn't just an ordinary dictionary, though. It was an American dictionary, which didn't ring any, didn't, made nothing to me. I didn't know it was an American dictionary at the time. But as you would probably know, dictionaries, American dictionaries spell things differently than the English dictionary. So anyway, <clears throat> we're back now in, uh, in 1960, and I pick up my American dictionary. And I like that letter R. I think, well, R seems strong, nice, strong letter. Turn up to a letter R and start flipping through. Not long before I came across R, E, E, B, O, K. Oh, a small South African gazelle. Gazelle. Wow. Gazelle. Now, that's something different. Yeah. So, rebound. Immediately, we fall in love with that. Take this back to the patent agent and say, look, whatever, we need this. Here's 10 names, but the one on top, Reebok. We've got to be in love with this. It's got to be our passion. You know, it's ours. Okay, he said, we'll see what we can do. However, it came back. This was the only one, the only name that was clear from all the other stuff oh, wow. that we could actually use without any sort of uh, problems, having to write to people or whatever. Right. But then the registrar made it. He said, well, we can only put you in part B of the register. <clears throat> to me, a register's a register, like, you know, part A, part B, what's that? Yeah. He said, well, <clears throat> if somebody comes along and starts making shoes from Reebok leather, we can't stop them. Well, Jeff and I, we looked at each other and said, who's going to do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, that's it, we registered Reebok. 20 years later, the registrar came back and said, we moved from part B to part a, a section of the uh, register. Oh yeah, right. So because now everybody knows Reebok is a shoe, not an animal. So we ended up in part A and that's our Reebok story. What a great story that is. Love it, absolutely love it. So when you took on Reebok, what was your skill set as a young man in the 60s and 70s? And where did you see the gap in the market? Well, I think really it was a matter of uh, <clears throat> not so much looking forward, looking for gaps in the market. I think it was a matter of survival. You know, J.W. Foster's we saw were going down. Yeah. What do we do? Do we, I mean, I trained as an engineer. <clears throat> I could well have been working for British Aerospace, but uh, stayed with the company. <clears throat> so, you know, it was a matter of saying, okay, we'll set up our own company and Jeff and I would work together. Jeff loved the factory. He can love working with it. That, that was his, uh, his passion. <clears throat> he would work in the factory. I would do everything else. So my skill set, I mean, we both worked together in the factory for quite some time because when there's just two of you, you know, starting your business. But I did everything else from bookkeeping to what we'd said that uh, father and uncle should have been doing at Foster's. And that was marketing, doing a business plan, getting some idea of where you're going and how to go there. So that was all left to me. Uh, and eventually I moved over to just doing that and Jeff ran the factory. So that was my skill set. Wow. And straight away, back in the 60s, did you know that you were going to make trainers? Because I'm sure there wasn't very much competition back then, was there? Um, <clears throat> well, trainers were, were out and about in those days. Mainly, foot, they call them football trainers. Right. I did just used to do a football trainer. <clears throat> I think it was called Samba or something like that. Yeah, It's still going now, the Samba, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, these things go for generations. They, they're just classics. You know, They're just yeah. there all the time. <clears throat> so if trainers were there, and, uh, and we made trainers more or less as running as we'll say road, road racing shoes, really, because the athletes, athletes would go out and train. And, you know, mainly in those early days, it's track and field. But really, for training, training purposes, people needed shoes that could run on roads, country, and whatever. So, yeah, trainers were, were quite big. We started off in cycling. Okay. We, we didn't want to compete with the, uh, with the family business who were mainly into athletics. We started up with cycling uh, and we, we did quite well. In fact, we picked up an agent in, in London and our business just went. 
Roughly what year is that, Joe? We're, we're talking about uh, 59, 60. Okay. You know, we, we had this nice cycle shoe business. Fantastic. So you must have just, were you, were you just winging it at the time? Because there was no one to, there was no mentor, I wouldn't have thought, or there wasn't you saying, well, this is the way we're going to do it. Were you just trialing and erroring and see what stuck? Well, we knew, we knew that there were cyclists. Yeah. We knew there were runners and athletes. Yeah. We knew they needed shoes. And uh, we, we wanted to be part of that. And the one thing that we did do is we became known as the athlete, athlete shoe eventually. Uh, and it didn't take long because we participated. Um, Jeff was a cyclist. He was also a runner. But all the athletes used to come to our little workshop. Well, it's quite a big workshop. Quite, <laughs> we didn't use much of it. But it, was, it was quite big. And they used to come and buy shoes from us direct. And you know, if there were plumbers or joiners, and if we wanted a job doing, they would come and do the job for us. So they were almost helping us build, build the company. So we became known as part of the athletics community. And, and, and that gave us credibility beyond, well, beyond what you could imagine. Yeah. You know, everybody's, you know, if you want a pair of real running shoes, real, go to Reebok, Reebok making the best. And uh, I used to go on the road. I, you know, I thought, well, because in those days, there'd be about two or three sports shops in every town. What are those, what are those sports shops called back in the day? Were they like Olympus and... Yeah, you probably remember them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and they all the and they were usually ex-footballers. Yeah, you know, and they, they would run a little sports shop, and I would go in and Reebok, and you know, they'd look at me and say, "Who?" Because you know they're a sports store. They they're not athletics. They don't whatever. They mainly they deal with football because they're ex-footballers, and uh, I bring out my stuff and yeah, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, but the, the local sailor, I've got Adidas. And I've got Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? Yeah. You know, the question hit home. Why do I need Reebok? They didn't need me. I had to make them need me. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a push or the pull. And uh, you know, either, either they're coming to me because they want my product, because my product is making, uh, making waves, doing something, or I'm trying to push a product in. I, I had a friend uh, who was in football, well in football, and he said, you know, we can't get into football any other way but value for money. We're, we're going to make our shoe brilliant with value for money. We're not going to pay these uh, clubs or these footballers. He didn't get anywhere. <laughs> he just didn't get anywhere. Value for money didn't mean anything. You know, influencers meant most. So you've got to get influencers. And we did that with athletes. I love this, Joe, because you are talking about influencers before influencers even around. You know, the word influencers really come into the into the forefront really over the last five, six, seven years with social media, but you were doing it before anyone was even thinking about it. Well, it's, it's like the word entrepreneur. You've got it behind you. When we started in business in the uh, late 50s, I don't think the word, the word was probably invented, but it wasn't used. Entre you know, we, we didn't hear entrepreneurs. We didn't hear influencers. You know, there was none of this. This, this has come with businesses. Business has grown and it's become uh, easier to sort of discuss business Yes, these words are coming out. And influencers, now influencers. Uh, and we've used influencers now all, our, all, all my life since we started in business. But now influencing is a business itself. Absolutely. <laughs> People out there just as influencers. That, that's, that's the job. Just, just tell me, Joe, just tell me, Joe, when, when was it when you really broke the back of the business, when you went, yes, we've, we've really done this? Was there a year that really springs to mind? Well, what, uh, I mean... We, we were in athletics. The big business for the UK was football. Yeah. And football, by the time we got uh, started our business, Adidas had a grip on football. You know, they were supplying teams, they had athletes. And for us to go into that was impossible. Was this the 70s or 80s? Well, we were talking uh, early 70s, but we, we, were, we were making inroads with our athletics. In fact, we'd only been in business four years. And uh, we got a letter from the Adidas lawyers that we were infringing, uh, we were infringing the three stripes because wow. we, had, we had two stripes and a T-bar. Yeah. So two stripes and a T-bar, fine. And, oh, yeah, you've got to desist from using this because they said that was uh, three stripes. We, we could have argued that, no, two stripes and a T-bar is not three stripes, but that would have been another legal cost in whatever. And we'd learned, we'd learned from changing our name. You know, we got a better name than Mercury. All of a sudden, we had Reebok. 
yeah, but much more. What are we doing? Well, we thought, brilliant. Adidas have recognized us. Oh, yeah. you know, we've arrived. Yeah. <laughs> Adidas think that, we, that they need to challenge us. So we went around and we redesigned. We, we did a different silhouette. And we produced the arrow silhouette, which we have now. Uh, it's known as a vector. So, and, and that in itself gave us a different uh, look and that improved. So right from those early days, it was, you know, okay. People begin to see that you know, we were determined, but we only had athletics. We only had running. <clears throat> and in those days, running wasn't really big. You had to belong to a club. And, but the good thing was that uh, the three A's, the Amateur Athletic Association, they produced a handbook, which had what, three, 400 clubs in it and the name and address of every secretary. Wow, lovely. Wow. Yes. Lovely. Thank you very That's much. That's my, <laughs> my business. <laughs> That's old school. I love it. Love it. So everybody got a letter from me offering 15% discount. And if anybody in the club wanted to be an agent, they could have the discount or it could be for the club. I got 150 agents. Yeah, brilliant. And they were all selling shoes within the club. Was there a point, Joe, with the trainers that you were doing that you, you said, right, we've, we've make, we can only make a certain amount in the UK. Then we thought, you know what, we've got to make them abroad. Was there, a, was there a year that springs to mind when you had to make that decision? Oh, that's, that's way down. Is it? Okay. Way down the field. Okay. We, we were still happy to grow in the UK. But we knew, I knew that if, if we were going to grow our business, we had to get a bigger market. Yeah. We look across at Europe and you've got 20 countries, different cultures, different languages. And in those days, very difficult to get into. Uh, Adidas were doing okay because they were on the continent. They were sort of, you know, there were neighbors that they were dealing with. We'd every time after make the effort uh, to get someone, but America. Did you have that in your mind the whole time? It's got to be America. For, yes, well, for, for a long time. It was even Foster's, uh, Jerry Foster. They, they were selling shoes to America. They were selling them to Yale, Yale University. Uh, it was Bob Jean-Jacques and Frank Ryan. They were the head coaches there. And they were buying 200 pairs a month into America of hand-sewn shoes, which they would sell to other uh, universities and, uh, and colleges. So I knew that in America, we, every, every college, every university had coach, and coach was God. You could get a scholarship, a, a sports scholarship in America to many of the universities. It was a big thing. And I knew that that was a big market. So it happened in 1968. I'm reading a magazine, and in the magazine is an advertisement from the government. And the government are trying to encourage sports companies to export. And they're saying, look, we'll, we'll supply you with a stand at the NSGA show, <clears throat> which is the National Sporting Goods of America, uh, in Chicago in February. We'll supply you with a stand. Um, we'll pay your return of fare yep. and 50% of your, uh, your hotel bills. Well, cheaper than staying at home, wasn't it? You know? Happy days. <laughs> Let's have a go at this. Uh, yeah. So uh, <clears throat> I decided, yes, I would go. And I went with a friend, a friend, Bob Brigham. I don't know if you know Ellis Brigham. Ellis Brigham have outdoor stores all the way through the UK. Uh, I went with, with Bob Brigham. I'm making some climbing boots for him, a nice lightweight climbing boot. So we went together. And uh, in fact, we, we actually tried to save money. I don't know why we were saving money for the government, but we took one of these special tickets where if you stay for two weeks, it's cheaper <clears throat> than just having single return and back. So, and so we decided we'd go to New York first. We dropped off in New York. He, he had a look at the outdoor stores. I had a look at the sports, sports stores just to get a feel for what was going to happen. Then we went on to Chicago and Chicago was cold, very cold, yeah. freezing. <clears throat> However, nice show. Bob sold some of his boots. I didn't sell any shoes. And the guys would come up to me and say, Fowl, like your shoes, lovely. Where do we get them from? And I said, well, from England. And he would say, is that New England? <laughs> no, England. Is it? But, you know, um, importation, they didn't want to do any importing. And they would say, well, look, guys, um, when you got somewhere I can, I can buy them from in, in the States, we'll, we'll give you a try. This is 1968. By the time I managed to get a distributor, 1979. 
Wow. 11 years. How would you how would you communicate back then if there was no obviously Google, no social media? It was literally just getting the, the old yellow pages out and speaking to people. If you were lucky, you could get a phone call to somebody. But, uh, you know, you, in those days, you couldn't just pick up dial and somebody would pick up at the other end. No, you, you were dialing into uh, your, your telephone people in the UK. They would send to the telephone people in USA. And so you got all this waiting whilst you got different connections. So uh, more often than not, I'm on, I'm on an airplane. I'm flying. Did you enjoy traveling around the world? Yes, I enjoy traveling around the world. and I, We still do. When, when we get the opportunity, can't travel much at the moment. But yes, um, I guess I travelled all my life. I, um, at one point, I was doing, I was going around the world probably three, four times a year, just totally going around the world. But uh, I mean, that's as it got later. And on these, these, these six attempts, I'm meeting people in America, um, usually at the NSGA. Sometimes they pick me up because we're advertising, we're promoting, and somebody comes out, I'd like to distribute your shoes. Um, but we failed, failed on six occasions, at least six occasions, from, uh, from somewhere in Massachusetts to somewhere down in two people, different people in California. In fact, no, three people in California tried. Didn't work. But uh, this, is where the good, this is where good fortune comes in. Because we're talking about during the 70s. And right at the beginning of the 70s, there was a running started to be something. Running started to take off in America, just road running and marathons. And a magazine, well, it was only a single page in those days, Runner's World. Yes. This is this single page. By 1975, it was a full-blown, glossy magazine. Fantastic. Runner's World. Well, all the athletics companies were advertising in there. But he, Bob Anderson, he was, he was so full of this that he decided he could tell everybody which was the best shoe in the world for you. And he did. I think it was something like his first one was uh, probably Nike Tailwind. Yeah. Ah, right. Well, Phil Knight, he's importing these from Japan, yep. from Onitsuka. Onitsuka, of course, is Essex these days, but he's importing them from there. Can he get... Can he reach, you know, meet the demand? Because somebody's already told the whole of America, this is the number one shoe. Yeah. How many orders do you think you get? Millions. Millions of people want that shoe. Can he get millions of shoes? No. No. Yeah. And Onitsuka, the Japanese company, you know, they're pretty busy to begin with. They can't just suddenly increase. So 12 months later, the shoes are starting to come. And the retailers who've been tearing their hair out because they couldn't get them suddenly have a lot of shoes. And then Bob Anderson of Runner's World, he decides 12 months, another number one shoe. So he changes that. Of course, you can imagine the retail trade, they're absolutely beside themselves because the, the shoes are coming in now that they don't want them because there's an, another number one. Yeah. And this only happened for two seasons. And I think people got to Bob Anderson and said, you can't do this. <laughs> so he changed it. He changed it to star ratings. So five-star shoe would be at the top, four, three, two, one. That was it. To get a number one shoe, I thought, that's going to be impossible. To get a five-star shoe, that's me. Yeah. I can do that. I can do that. I can design a five-star shoe. And we did. We designed our stick. So I designed our stick, um, but it was part of what we called the gold range. We had Aztec, Midas, and Inca. Midas was a road racing shoe, and Inca was a track spike. And of course, Aztec was the road training shoe. That's where the demand would be. We tested this out in the uh, Commonwealth Games at Edmonton, and we got quite a nice fistful of gold medals from, from that with our gold range. So we're talking about February 1979, and I'm down at the NSGA show again in Chicago. Kmart come along. Kmart are big, uh, big host of big distributors in the USA. A bit like Walmart, but this is Kmart. And they want 25,000 pounds. Uh, six months work for a small factory. Mm -hmm. But uh, as we said before, we knew that if we got a five-star shoe, we'd have to have somebody make them for us. And so a good friend of mine had set up the, the a sports division at Barta. And he said, we'll make them. We can do that for you. Brilliant. But then came out and said, but we need a better price. 
Yes, everything's moving to the Far East now. And this is what we're talking, everything's moving there. So I'm already talking with people from South Korea. Well, they had a London office when I'm talking to them and there. So we're prepared on both sides. Okay. But during that, uh, during the NSGA show in February, also along came Paul Feynman. Paul Feynman, <clears throat> he ran, he was CEO of a, a small um, outdoor wholesalers company, Boston Camping it was called. And Boston Camping, tents, fishing rods, you name, anything to do with camping, that's what it is. And he ran this with his brother and his brother-in-law. And I, I think they've been doing about 10 years. I think they did father had probably done it. And, and I could tell, I could tell from Paul, he was a bit fed up of going around that same. Uh, been doing this for 10 years. Oh dear. And he said, Joe, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd love to be your distributor. And it's fantastic. I've got great products here. But I need a five-star shoe. <laughs> Paul, come on. Look at this. This is a five-star. Nah, you've not got a five-star. Paul, this is going to be a five-star shoe, believe me. Brilliant. I said, brilliant, Joe, brilliant. I, I do believe you. But until we get the five stars, yeah. he said, yeah, I can't do anything. He said, yeah, if we get a five stars, that's me. We're on. Okay, fantastic. We're in February. I go backwards and forwards to the States a couple of times to see Kmart, to see, to see the Boston camping operation. Great stuff. However, the last week in July because the, uh, the running uh, edition is out, the shoe edition is out in August. It usually comes out the last week before August. So last week in July, I'm on the phone to Paul. I think he must have got him out of bed because it was quite a bit dozy. And uh, I said, Paul, get, can you get down to the local kiosk? The Runners World magazine will be out by now. We, we don't get it here. And, uh, oh yeah, yeah, okay. An hour later, Paul comes back. Joe, Aztec. Yeah. Five stars. That's it. <laughs> Love it. We got it. We got the hook. Yes. This yeah. is what we needed. We needed yeah. that, that, that pull round on the push. We got the hook. He said, but Joe, he said, Midas and Inca, in their own categories, they also got five stars. Oh, wow. So we got three five-star shoes wow. to hit America with. Wow. And this is what, that, early 80s? That was, uh, that was 1979. Yeah. That was... August 1979, and that, that was it. We, we then got into America. And that was the big game changer for you, is it? Well, I mean, that meant that we, we, we already had an audience that would, in America that would see this as a five-star shoe, and there were probably three others. So there's only four five-star shoes. So we're one of four. So we're, we're going to get 25% or thereabouts of this two, three, four, five million demand that comes wow. in America. I mean, by this time, this had grown massive. Well, you, you remember the marathons, the yeah. Boston Marathon, New York Marathon, all the big marathons. So we're in America. Brilliant. Okay. But, you know, that's not the one thing that really made Reebok grow. What made Reebok grow was aerobics. Yes, aerobics. Now, how did we get to aerobics? Well, <laughs> we're, we're in running. And down in Los Angeles, we, we have Arnold Martinez. And Arnold... He is a tech rep, but he's going into the stores. Just he's not selling the shoes. He's going in there and he's telling everybody all about the Reebok shoe and blah, 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 whatever it is, which, which is great. But uh, his wife, his wife is coming home, and she's full of this with her friends. They come in there, wow, really? And I'm uh, saying, what do you do with what's what's all this? And she said, it's aerobics. And he's like what's the rest that? of us in those yeah, aerobics. What's that? What's that? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well. We're exercising to music. Really? And what well, is it? Still good. Well, it's not music. It's really, you know, it's, it's fantastic. Arnold says, I must, I must have a look at this. Next time she went, he went down with her. What did he see? He sees an instructor in trainers. Half the class are also in trainers. The other half, bare feet. For Arnold, that was a bit of a light bulb moment. Why don't we make these girls a nice, soft uh, glove, uh, glove leather upper? with a nice cushion sole. Off he goes up to see Paul Feynman in Boston, who he's doing. And uh, Arnold's explaining this to Paul, and Paul's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Just a minute. We, we're in running. And look, Arnold, we're doing really nice now. We're running. Uh, our offering's growing. We're doing fine. We can't be playing around by making the shoes for a few girls who are jigging about down there in uh, yeah. Los Angeles. <laughs> 
<laughs> Arnold's not put off though. He goes round to the back of the office, right? to the uh, production people, and he has a word with Steve Liggett. Steve Liggett's our man who's connecting with Korea. And uh, he says, Steve, can you make me a, a glove leather upper? Just nice and white, just got the Reebok on there and, and the flag and uh, nice cushion sole. I only want 200 pairs. He persuaded Steve to do that. So a little later, Steve delivers him these 200 pairs down to LA and he's given them to instructors and to uh, a few of the girls who were really leading, leading this opera. And uh, the rest is history. Yeah, the girls loved them so much. Right? Bear in mind, they was made from glove leather. Yeah. And when I heard of glove leather, I nearly fainted. I was like, oh, can't do that. And indeed, these, these shoes were falling apart after about two months' work. They were coming apart, just ripping. Yeah. We, did, we did cure that. But the girls in LA, yeah, this is America. This is LA. They didn't care. Yeah. They just went out and bought another pair. <laughs> <laughs> Simple as that. You know, and and then, then when Jane Fonda buys a pair and she's using them, yeah, and she's using them on her videos, yeah. uh, you know, she's doing her exercise videos, she's wearing Reebok. It just exploded. It went street. That was it. The yeah. girls were wearing these shoes to go to work. They were putting the high heels in a bag and just wherever they went, they were, they were wearing the, uh, the, the Reeboks and the freestyles. And it just started to explode. And you don't see it. it took, well, we were a nine, $9 million American business at that time. And it, within 12 months, we went to 30 million. You're joking me. 30 million from wow. 9 million to 30 million. Wow. And then in the next 12 months, we went to 90 million. And then wow. 300 million. Wow. Hold on a minute. What year are we talking here? Let's just, I, I'm loving this. Nine mil to 30. We're talking 40. Uh, 80, 84, 85, 86. By that time, we'd got up to 900 million. Jesus. And what was that period from 30 mil to 900 mil? How many years was that? Four. It was four years. So I think it started God. off in 83, 83, four years. So, and that was sort of what happened. By the time we got to 4 billion, my God, I decided to retire. <laughs> I would have tired at 30 mil. <laughs> <laughs> so what So what year did you get to 4 billion turnover? Uh, we're talking about eight, 1989. Okay. And is that the point where you thought, hold on a minute, I've taken this brand as far as I can go. I need to hand the reins over to someone now. Well, I mean, the reins sort of, you, you've got to allow people. I was traveling. This is when I was traveling around the world about three, four times a year, just continuing to go around the world. I, in, in my book, uh, the first trip I went on, <clears throat> I took a ticket, which was, uh, and this was, oh, before the aerobics uh, craze started, and that was around the world in 80 days, or less, that was the ticket, Pan Am 2, yeah. um, first class standby. <laughs> so I was flying first class, unless first class was full, then they pushed me down to business class. I only did that once, and that was flying from Tokyo to uh, Hawaii, because all the Japanese used to go down there for the weddings and for the honeymoons. So, so it only was. But that was an amazing ticket. And, and in the book, I don't know if you read Shoemaker, but uh, the book explains all this. And uh, by the time we were, we were talking about 89, and I was flying from one city to another. I was being met by a limousine. I was being driven to the best Italian town. And we were dining at the best restaurants. You know, we were going to Monte Carlo, to Monaco, we had all the Hollywood stars there. We had Roger Moore and uh, the, the whole thing. We even had Frank Sinatra at one point. Wow. So all these guys there. And, uh, and it was like, you're living in this, this space, yeah, which is, which is okay, but you're thinking, well, just a minute, you know, what am I doing here? <laughs> and you know, by that time, the company was full of accountants, was full of lawyers. I'm full of people who just filled boxes and boxes and yeah, had all that. So by that time, it was, well, uh, should I say, the challenge of God. Right? We've been through so many challenges that, uh, that all of a sudden the challenge is gone. Time to, time to retire. Time, time to get out of it. But it, it is a bit like um, the Eagles in a hotel California. You know, you can check out, but you can yeah. never leave. Yeah, yeah. When you sold out in, was it 1989 you sold out? 84. 
84. How much did you sell out for? Well, it wasn't a big amount. Yeah. And the, there were arrangements, should I say. And the reason, the reason for this was to, was to bring in the money. And that was Stephen Rubin. I don't know if you know Steve. Yeah. yeah. You can't Pen, is that Penland we, Group? We, we go back to trying to get to 300 million, 300 million from 90 million. Yeah. Uh, Paul Fine has no money. We have no money. Yeah. You know what I mean? To get that money, in, and banks in those days were not, they needed a record. You know? yeah. So, uh, through a friend of a friend, Paul managed to get, get in touch with uh, Stephen Rubin. He's also JD Sports these days. Um, and one of his businesses was ASCO, and that's the Associated Shoe. And ASCO, they, they, were, they were a sourcing company. They used to source the shoes out of Korea. Yeah. At the beginning, when, uh, when Parta had provided Paul, they provided a credit line with those shoes. There were a lot of problems, and it so happened he never paid for those shoes because of the problems. And that helped him go. But he knew, <clears throat> we knew from Korea, you needed to put the money up, you needed a letter of credit. So he, he, we had to find a source of income. And uh, we went two or three places in America talking to people. Uh, one guy in the Empire State Building said he'd been approached by uh, Nike in their early days and he turned them down because he didn't think they'd make it. <clears throat> and he said, and I'm going to turn you guys down because I don't think you'll make it. And I don't want to be known as the guy who picked the loser. Yeah. Oh. So he turned us down as well. <laughs> um, but Stephen Rubin, he gave, uh, he gave Paul um, a credit line. And at this point, I needed to, well, he needed to know he got the money. So this is when I sold. So that we, we got that credit line. And that credit line provided an awful lot of money at that time. Did that credit line really ease the pressure on everyone? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that meant that you could, <clears throat> you could go south. Because I met with Paul a few times and we, we sat down together and you know, it was going crazy. The demand was going crazy. And Paul said, Joe, I know how to stop this. He said, but I don't know how to start it again. And that would have been, that would have been disaster. So it was essential to get the money into the company. Yeah. And having the money in the company allowed that expansion. But, you know, once we got 300 million, to go to 900 million, now, money wasn't the problem. Yeah. But you've just got to think, well, what's your problem? Product. Product. How do you get the product from 300 million to, in 12 months? Yeah. And fortunately for us, Nike, at that time, they'd been doing well, but they just hit a wall and the sales have suddenly dropped. They had to come out with about two or three factories in Korea. Again, just at the time when we were going up and needed it. So that was, again, another piece of good luck. The factories were there just when we needed that production. So, you know, there's a lot of things come along, along the way. And uh, it's, it's taking those opportunities and it's seeing them. And, it's, you know, and for me, yeah, I, I think for me, we're in a different world. At, at four billion, we're in a different world. This, this is where you, you know, people don't even know how to make shoes. Yeah. They just yeah, know yeah. how to make money. They yeah. just know how to sell. Number just crunchers. Fit, yeah. yeah. Just fit the numbers. And did you, when you, when you sold, did they keep you in the business for a number of years afterwards? I, yeah, I stayed in the business until I, I, I left in 1989 because I was looking after, I was looking after the rest of the world. Wow. And then from 89, where did you see it really rocket from there? When would, when did the sort of like the Reebok Classic come in? Was that the best seller, trainer out of everything? Well, the Classics and, and a few more products came in during the late 80s. That's when you get to a certain point and you've got to, because the biggest problem was, uh, I would say, look, we've done this off aerobics and we're a women's company. Is that sustainable? And obviously the thinking was, no, we've got to go into basketball. We've got to go into American football. And, and that's what happened. Somewhere in the mid nineties, Reebok plateaued. They were doing about 5 billion, but they plateaued. They didn't keep going on. Again, it, probably Paul had reached his limit as to where he should take it. And probably should have brought in somebody else, but it plateaued. Because I, I think taking it beyond these areas, you, you've got to have a different mindset. And your mindset really is volume, 
is, is, is income, not the product. The product you leave to other people. You know, they've got to be, you tell them what you need. You know, you need, we need to focus this, this, this. What does that market need? But uh, Reebok plateaued. And 10 years later, in 2005, 2006, Adidas bought the company, or they sold it to Adidas. Do you know how much they sold it for? What they sold it for? They sold yeah. it for uh, $3.8 billion. Yeah. So they'd obviously plateaued and yeah. settled down a little bit. Which, uh, uh, and then I think now the company is doing one to $1.5 billion. Oh, so really dropped. I mean, Adidas bought the company. And if you're Adidas, what do you do? The, you take the stuff that will grow Adidas. Adidas wanted momentum and buying Reebok helped them. And you can't blame them. That's what they did. And right now they're selling Reebok. Yeah. Did you think they were buying Reebok to put them out of the market so to grow Adidas? Um, well, they didn't say that, but I think if you read between the lines, it was to control what was going on there. And they tried to put Reebok into just women and fitness mm. and took away all their commitment to performance, to um, yeah, performance sports, really, uh, spectator sports. They put that into Adidas. So they took, but uh, say now they're, now they're selling Reebok. In fact, there's, a, there's an auction going on now. For who's going to buy Reebok, which is very interesting. Very interesting. Is it something that you would advise someone who's got the money to buy the Reebok brand and reignite it? Um, oh, yes. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure I will talk to them. I have already talked to two of the people who have been interested. We, we don't know how interested they are. You know, they, they don't tell you that. It's because these people are uh, private equity people or they're big, big groups in China. There's a big group in China that could well do that. And, and then you've got a massive, massive audience if you, if you could. Because, you know, whichever way you look at it, China's going to be very important for the next 20 or 30 years in terms of volume. You know, you, you've got to have a lot of people there. So uh, it's going to be interesting. And, and yes, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> I'm happy to uh, come in and say what happened or whatever. Um, a lot of people are reading Shoemaker now, which is good. That's... Yep. Uh, it's, it's, in, it's interesting to see how many people have enjoyed the story. Yeah, I've heard many. I'm looking forward to reading The Shoemaker, which is your book. I'm very much looking forward to that, Joe. Um, just quickly, what are your thoughts on the brand Gymshark, the British brand? They've done really well, haven't they? They've done really well. You start off in a garage again, one of these small, small companies. And yeah, again, it's a matter of staying focused. He stayed focused on, on gyms and... Uh, and he did probably what we did because he used to work with all the gyms. He used to go around and send his team around and they would put exhibitions on and sell the product at the same time. So they, they sort of started to own that area where if you're in a gym, you know, you come and see Gymshark. So he's done very well. I think he's been, uh, I think, valued over a billion these over days. Over a billion, yeah. He's done wonderfully well and he's from the Midlands and it's, it's great to see these British brands succeeding, you know? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's there, but you've got, you've got to get into America to really, you know, get the, uh, get the volumes. That, that's the main thing, to get the volume. The volume was never really in the UK. It's good, it's a nice market, but uh, you've really got to get the volumes by, you've got to go global. And yes, I know one or two people who, who work with, uh, with Jim Sharp. In fact, they sent me quite a bit of kit. Have they? <laughs> the skin-tight cycling stuff. Well, you know, I said caps and stuff like that. Nothing, nothing too energetic for me at this stage. <laughs> Joe, I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed listening to your story. It's one hell of a journey you've been on, and you must be super proud that your name is Mr. Reebok. Well, it's been it's been great. It was never my name. The, the whole idea was that we, we would grow Reebok. We're not yeah. not Joe Foster. You know, it was grow Reebok. I think this is where you have to again focus. Grow the brand. You know, don't become bigger than the brand because you're all, <clears throat> we're only here for a limited time. We hope the brand, but if it can go back to grandfather in 1895 and here we are in 2021, it's over 125 years. <clears throat> you know, we, we've got some history there. And we, we hope. I think if Reebok can again become a, an independent company, so yeah. if it's private acquisition, <clears throat> if they take it, they grow it a bit and then they float it. Yes. But it becomes independent again, as Nike, as Adidas. And, and I think that will, I, I think it's good. I mean, when I left, we were number one. 
we'd overtaken Adidas. We'd overtaken Nike. Is that right? Yes. Reebok were the number one sports brand in 1989. When I left, we were number one sports brand. So, you know, it, and I think it's, uh, it's possible. That we, I think over 60% of uh, people in America bought a pair of Reebok. And that, that's a, a lot of shoes. You know, you're talking millions there. Absolutely. Does it break your heart at all, Joe, to see where the brand is sitting today? Well, you know, I think you've got to be realistic. And, and, and I think you've got to accept the fact that brands do, do have a dip. Now, I mean, at one time, we almost bought Adidas. Reebok almost bought Adidas. It was at that point. Adidas were really struggling. Uh, and Nike had a, a struggle. But Nike and Adidas, they, they got back up again and went, I think Reebok now have got to get back up again. I think this is the time for Reebok to get up and, and, and start going again. So, um, and, and I think if you didn't ever have a, a slowdown or something happening to, to your brand, you wouldn't really know how, how to do this in life. You know, if it was forever going up, at some point you would just collapse because you've got to have some of the setbacks to be able to really figure out, well, what, what did we do when we were doing it? What did we do wrong? Ah, this is what we should do again. So, you know, you've got to get the, that right mindset. And you've got to build a culture. <clears throat> and we, we had, when we were growing, it was a winning culture. Yeah. Everybody belonged to it. Yeah. Yeah, everybody was so excited. They, everybody owned Reebok. You know, they had a piece of it. Yeah. With that. And I think you've got, to, you've got to do that. You've got to sort of get that. I think when you get to something like Adidas and Nike, Nike are over 20 billion now. Adidas are coming up that way, uh, just to under. But uh, you know, you've got to know how to compartmentalize, get pe let people own that area, let people become so important to it. And encouragement, you know, you've got to encourage people, even when not every day is going to be a good day, <clears throat> but you've got to believe it will be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Every day is a good day, even though you know on the days you'll struggle. But so it's, a lot of it is attitude. A lot of it is how you feel. And, and if you feel you could do it, the rest. And if you're all working together, amazingly enough, it can happen. Joe, I absolutely love your passion. I thank you so much for giving me your time on this podcast. It's a pleasure. Roger, it's an absolute pleasure. And please keep in touch. I will do. You're a gentleman. And anyone listening, The Shoemaker Book by Joe Foster, please check it out. You can get it from Amazon. Amazon. Good man, Joe. Thank you, Roger.